everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Christopher Porco. So Christopher Porco, the first thing I have to say about him is that he was a very very entitled human being. He had every opportunity for success in life, but instead he was a liar. He was a scam artist and he committed a horrific act against his very own parents, all to protect his web of lies. And there are some very, very unusual things that happen in today's case. But there are things that happen in this case that I have never, ever, ever in my life heard of happening before. That is all I'm going to say right now. And this case as well, it's a little bit of a weird one because at first his mom implicated him, but now she's saying that he didn't do it. So did he do it or did he not? Is she covering for him? Oh yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. So that is what we need to figure out today. So let's dive in. Christopher Walker was born on the 9th of July, 1983, making him a cancer. And he grew up in Bethlehem, New York, where he lived with his parents, Joan and Peter Porco, and his older brother, Jonathan. Now, growing up, Christopher's family has been described as a, quote, classic American family. His parents were in a happy, loving marriage. They had been married for a very long time. Both of his parents also had really good jobs. His dad, Peter, worked in the legal field, and his mom, Joan, worked as a teacher. The family were also heavily involved in the church and Joan actually attended church every single day. And Peter and Joan have been described as just really great parents, very loving, very caring, wanting the best for their children. Joan and Peter worked really hard for the lifestyle that they had. They had a really nice home. They lived on a nice neighborhood. There was low crime rate. Both the children as well, Christopher and Jonathan, were really academically gifted. They both excelled in school. Christopher also excelled at sports. Christopher was also described as really charming. He had a lot of friends. He was very popular and he was just the kind of person that was really friendly. He was always smiling and that is pretty much Christopher's childhood. Honestly, there is nothing to really report about his childhood. It it was a good childhood. He had a good upbringing. He had good parents. However, it is when Christopher leaves high school that a little bit of a darker side starts to come out. So he attends the University of Rochester, Rochester. (laughs) Again, I don't know how to pronounce this because I do Google how to pronounce words, by the way. And whenever I search for how to pronounce Rochester, it sounds like everyone says Rochester, Rochester, but I feel like that is just the New York accent. So I'm going to say Rochester. (laughs) So he enrolled into the University of Rochester in 2001, and he clearly always had this darker side. It just never really came out earlier than this, or at least it wasn't apparent to anyone anyway. But as soon as he got to university, something that you should note is that Christopher is a chronic liar. And honestly, that is an understatement. When he got to university, he wanted to reinvent himself, which there's nothing wrong with that. But he decided to reinvent himself on lies, on stuff that was not true. He wanted to impress people. And he thought the best way to impress people was by people thinking that he was rich. He wanted everyone to think that he was this quote, jet setting millionaire. He wanted to make out that he was from a really important, powerful and super rich family. He even said that his grandmother owned a ridiculous amount of land. So Christopher would start telling pretty much everyone that he would meet, that his family owned really huge, lavish mansions all over the world. He said that he had this huge luxury lodge in Vermont and they had properties in Aruba and he was a part of a fraternity and he would shower his frat brothers in presents. He would buy them so many gifts and he essentially wanted to buy friends. He wanted to impress them and he thought by making everyone think that he was rich, that was going to do it. Whenever there was parties as well, Christopher would be the one to fund the parties. He would buy all the drinks and people didn't question 
his stories because Christopher always seemed to have money on him. He was always willing to pay for the drinks, like I said, always willing to throw parties, buy people gifts. He always seems to have a ridiculous amount of money on him and he's not exactly shy about it. But his family, they were comfortable, but they were not wealthy. So where was Christopher getting all of this money from? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. He also started telling people that his grandma was getting sick and he was set to inherit $2.8 million from her as a gift. It's like, really? I just don't get people that try to impress people with money because ultimately, like deep down, it doesn't work. And it's not actually clear why he did lie about having money. Did he want to impress people? It kind of seems like it. Did he want validation? Like, I don't know. Did he just want people to think that he was powerful? Did he want almost authority? I don't know. And Christopher would lie about other things as well. It wasn't just money, but that was obviously the main thing that he lied about. It was just one of those people that compulsively lied about everything. And he's one of those people that there's so many lies coming out of his mouth. It's like, how do you keep up with the truth? And he kept up this fake persona throughout his whole university life, which university is like three, four years. That is crazy to keep that up. So that is one negative personality trait that Christopher has. But another one is that he was incredibly volatile. He was the kind of person that would fly off the handle and could fly off the handle at any moment. He was also a heavy drinker, which did not help the situation. He was constantly getting into fights and he was just really argumentative and sometimes aggressive with his classmates. There was actually one time where he threatened to kill a girl that was in one of his classes. Now, we don't know what the hell happened. Like, what the hell would happen for Christopher to threaten to kill somebody? But obviously, it was reported, which is how we know about it. We don't know the details of what led up to that, but that is just so crazy. Like, why would you do that? There was also another time where he was in a fight at a party, which did happen quite often, but this one was a very extreme because he was choking the other student and other students that were at the party had to drag Christopher off this other student because he wouldn't stop choking him. Christopher is a compulsive liar and he's very violent. Not a good combination. But also Christopher was incredibly lazy. He was also one of those people that expected the world to come to him. He didn't actually want to work for anything. He was just entitled. He didn't think that he had to put that much work or effort into life for him to succeed. Because Christopher was very academically intelligent. He could have gotten good grades, but he was lazy and he didn't put the effort in. And he didn't get good grades because you've got to put the work in. To get good grades, you've got to put the work in. There are only a very few people on this planet that don't have to put work in and get good grades. I am jealous of those people, but most people, we have to put the work in. Okay, so now we need to go back to the question, where was Chris getting all of that money from? Because obviously he was paying for a lot of things. He must have been getting the money from somewhere. And how did Chris decide to get all of that money? He decided to steal. And who did he decide to steal from? His parents. The very people that loved and cared about him and his parents, I do want to stress this, they were such good parents. They were so supportive. They were always there to help out, to listen. They loved and cared for their children so much. And Chris just takes advantage of them completely. So one incident where Chris stole from his parents, it was Thanksgiving. So he was home from university. He was there with the family. They were having Thanksgiving dinner. It was really nice. And just before Chris goes back, to uni after the Thanksgiving break, he decides to stage a break-in to his parents' home and steal the two laptops, his parents' laptops. He then sold those laptops on eBay, pocketed the money, and that is how he got his money, basically. He would steal things, sell them on eBay. His parents did report the break-in because his parents actually genuinely thought that there was a break-in to the house. So his parents did report the break-in, but obviously nothing was ever done. The police could not figure out what had happened. And Joan and Peter had to replace their laptops out of their own pocket. A couple of months later, he stages a another break-in and he steals the two new laptops. It's like he's just done the exact same thing and his parents again didn't suspect him. They genuinely thought again that there was a break-in. Joan and Peter reported it to the police. Again, nothing was done about it because the police couldn't figure out what the hell had happened. But he didn't just steal from his parents. Oh, 
No. Christopher worked part-time at a vet's, a vet clinic, and Christopher decides to stage a break-in at the vet's as well. He breaks in late at night, he steals laptops, cameras, cell phones, and once again, he gets away with it and sells all of it on eBay. So not only is he stealing from his parents, he's also stealing from the animals. So that is one of the ways that Christopher would make the money to pretend like he was rich. Obviously, Christopher was making out like he was this mega multi-millionaire. Stealing a few laptops and selling them on eBay is not going to cut it. So what does he now decide to do? Well, he decides that he's going to start scamming people. So he takes to eBay again and starts listing laptops, cameras, etc. Basically, all of the things that he's already stolen, he starts listing all of those items again, selling them, scamming innocent people out of their money. And then because he doesn't have those items, he doesn't send them. People obviously report him because they haven't gotten their items. But Christopher, I actually cannot believe that he did this. When all of these innocent customers would get in touch with him and say, listen, where are my items? I've paid you the money. Christopher would actually pretend to be his brother, Jonathan, and reply back to these customers and say, oh, I'm really sorry, but my brother, Christopher, is dead. Therefore, there is nothing I can do. And I don't know how he got away with this. Like, how, how does he get away with this? But he does. So now we need to go back to his college life. It is now 2003, and he's been at the University of Rochester for approximately two years now. And honestly, I don't know how he lasted this long, because he was pretty much failing every single class. So it's like, how did he even make it this far? Well, because of two years of laziness, he now gets kicked out. He has failed way too many classes and they're just like, right, that's it. We've given you too many chances. You're out. Now, Joan and Peter were not happy about this. They just didn't like seeing their son throw his life away. I mean, he has so much potential. And even though they weren't happy about this, they weren't being overbearing or judgmental or anything like that. They were actually being really supportive about this whole thing. They genuinely cared about Christopher and wanted what was best for him. So when he did get kicked out of uni, they said to him, okay, let's Let's try and turn this thing around. Let's try and get you back on the right path. They, as a family, made a plan. He was going to go to a community college, Hudson Valley Community College. He was going to work hard. He was going to get good grades. His parents would support him in any way that he wanted. And he was going to get good enough grades to then transfer back to the University of Rochester. And I just think that this is just so nice. You know, I just think that Christopher doesn't realize how good his parents are. And Christopher agrees to this plan, but does he stick to it? No, of course he doesn't because Christopher is lazy. Because Christopher was skipping classes pretty much straight away. He was never finishing assignments. He was never putting in any effort. And by the end of his first semester, his grades were terrible once again. So we now get to spring of 2004 and Chris thinks, you know what? I need a break. I need a vacation. I've been putting in so much hard work at university. So first of all, he lies to his parents and he says that he's gotten really good grades. So he deserves to go on a break. And and for spring break, Chris decides to actually come to England, which I always find it so weird. Like people actually come on holiday to England, which I know is not weird because I want to go on holiday in so many places. And if you live there, you're probably like, oh, why would you want to come here? So Chris came over to England and he was having a really good time. He was doing all like the normal touristy things around London. He was going to like Big Ben, the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral. But what Chris didn't actually realize is that whilst he was over here in England enjoying himself back at home, his parents had just received a letter containing Chris's actual grades. Because at this point, Joan and Peter were actually proud of Chris. They were proud that he's managed to turn things around and he's actually gotten good grades this time. But when they opened this letter and saw that he was failing everything again, they were furious. But they weren't furious that he was failing. They were furious that he lied to them again. So they sent Chris an email whilst he was on spring break over here in England. And the subject of the email was failing grades. You did it again. And then the email was very long, but I just have like a short little snippet from it. So the email said, 
you just left. We can't believe our eyes. I'm looking at your midterm grade report and it's all FFF. How could you lie to us like you did? Explain yourself mom and dad. Now, as you can imagine, when Chris received that email, he probably went through a little bit of a panic. He was probably thinking, how the hell am I going to get out of this one? And you're probably thinking, well, yeah, how does he get out of this? It is in black and white. The college has sent his parents a letter telling them that he is failing. How is he going to get out of this? But this is Christopher Porco. He is slippery. He is slimy. He manages to manipulate everything and he always just seems to get away with everything. And instead of coming clean, and apologizing for lying, he decides to come up with a plan that involved more lying. It's like, why do liars come up with more lies to cover their lies? Why don't they ever just come out and say, you know what? Yeah, I was wrong. So he says to his parents, oh, there's a mix up. There's a mix up on the system. Like, don't worry. I got A's and B's. I'll prove it to you when I get home. It's all just a complete misunderstanding. So when he gets back, he forges his community college results card. And he goes to his parents and he's like, look, this is my actual grade sheet. This is the proper one. I told you I'm getting A's and B's. There was just a complete misunderstanding at the college. And his parents believe him. His parents believe him. And I just don't know, how can you believe someone at this point when they have lied to you so many times, especially over the same thing? So I don't know if they truly believed him or just wanted to believe him. I don't know. But all I know is that they said that they believed him and they were like, okay, it seems all legitimate. But that is not actually the worst part about all of this. Chris decides to think, hmm, you know what? This forged uh, grade sheet is really good. I'm going to use this to reapply to the University of Rochester. And somehow, I cannot believe this happened, but the University of Rochester let him back in. And I don't know how he got away with this. Like, seriously, how? He manages to throw together some forged transcripts himself. Obviously, he had his grade sheet there saying that he was getting all of these amazing grades, A's and B's in everything. And he sends this off to the University of Rochester. And it's like, are you not checking? Is there nobody that is going to phone the community college that he's going to and just double check this? How? I, I, I just don't understand. So now we get to the full semester of 2004 and Chris is back at the University of Rochester. This is his first semester back and this is approximately two months before the tragic events of today's case. So now that he's back at the University of Rochester, he decides to completely screw over his parents' once again. Again, I want to point out that Peter and Joan are so proud of their son that he has worked so hard and now he has been able to get back into the University of Rochester. And I suppose, I didn't really think about this until now, this is why they believed his lies. Because you've got to think about it from their point of view. The University of Rochester have let him back in. If Christopher was lying, they wouldn't do that. So I feel like now I understand why they did buy his lies. So now that he is back at the University of Rochester, Chris approaches his dad and says, um, now that I'm back at university, there are a few textbooks that I need and they're really, really expensive. Can you loan me some money? $2,000 to be exact. Now, $2,000 is a lot of money, but I also know that textbooks are hella expensive. And I've said this a million times already, but Joan and Peter just want what's best for Christopher. So if he needs money for textbooks for school, they are going to help him out. So Peter doesn't even bat an eyelid. He's like, of course, I'll lend you the money. We'll go and co-sign a loan today. Another lie that Christopher told his parents was that the University of Rochester were actually covering his student fees and therefore he didn't need any money or loans or anything like that to pay his student fees. But obviously that was not true. So what does Chris decide to do? He decides to take his dad's financial details from the loan that he has just co-signed for that $2,000. He takes his dad's details, forges his dad's signature and uses this to reapply for a $31,000 loan, which he obviously does use to pay off his tuition fees, but he does this behind his dad's back and he's obviously co-signed this with his dad. So now he's putting his dad in debt and his dad doesn't even know. He then takes out another loan for $16,000 
And what does he do with this money? Well, he buys himself a brand new yellow Jeep Wrangler. And he starts driving this around the college. He starts driving this everywhere. He thinks he's really cool in his new car. And then on top of all of that, Chris had a little bit of a gambling addiction as well. And he managed to rack up $40,000 worth of debt. And it's thought that he did steal some money from his parents to pay off some of this debt. And it's just unbelievable. How does he think that he's going to get away with this? Chris has taken out loans in his dad's name for $31,000 for the tuition fees and now $16,000 for a new car. That's on top of the 2000 original loan. That is nearly $50,000 worth of loans in his dad's name. How does he think that he's going to get away with this? His dad is going to notice. I'll tell you why he thinks he's going to get away with this, because he's managed to get away with everything for his whole life. I mean, he's literally just blagged himself a place at the University of Rochester. How can he do that? But he did, and he succeeded. So that is why he thinks he's going to get away with this. But guess what? He doesn't. Chris's dad, Peter, finds out everything. So this is November 2004, and this is very sadly just two weeks before the tragic events of today's case. Peter ran a credit check, very normal thing, and he was expecting to see the $2,000 loan that he had co-signed with his son, and that was the only loan he was expecting to see. But instead, he also saw the $31,000 loan and also the $16,000 loan. He saw that the $31,000 loan had been paid directly to the University of Rochester. And he also saw that the $16,000 loan was for a brand new car. The car that his son, Christopher, just so happened to be driving around in. So when Peter found out about all of these loans, he was quite understandably furious. He sends a furious email to Chris asking, what the hell is going on? What are all of these loans? Why is he lying to them again? He also tells Chris that he needs to pay the money back right away. He's not going to get away with this. Peter also did say in the email that if his son was not going to pay the money back, he would be forced to take legal action against Chris. And how did Chris respond to this email? Well, he just ignored it. Now, Peter and Joan are obviously understandably very angry with their son because they have just found out that he has lied to them again, but he has also now gotten them into debt. This is serious. So yes, they are angry with their son, but again, I feel like a broken record. Peter and Joan just want the best for Christopher and they are concerned for him. So Joan sends another email to Chris and she says to Chris, we're just concerned. We love you. Yes, we are angry. Yes, we are disappointed, but we just want what's best for you. We are really worried about your mental state. She told him in the email, countless times that they loved him. They will always love him and they just wanted him home as soon as possible. And this is what just gets me so angry about this case because Christopher had such good parents. But Christopher ignored that email from his mom as well. He just did not care about his parents. Now, we don't know the exact reasoning behind it, probably due to shame, possibly annoyance, maybe regret, but I don't know if Christopher is capable of that emotion. Maybe it was just because he got caught. I don't know. But because his parents had found out his web of lies, Christopher started to formulate the most awful plan. And it was just seven days after the last email sent from Joan and Peter to Chris that the tragic events of today's case take place. On the 14th of November, 2004, at 10.36pm, Christopher was seen leaving his college campus in his bright yellow Jeep Wrangler. He then travelled the 200-mile journey from the University of Rochester to his parents' home in Bethlehem, where he arrived in the early hours of the morning on the 15th of November. Chris then parked his Jeep on the driveway of his parents' home. He went inside his parents' home using a key and entered the code to disable the alarm system. Once inside, Chris makes his way to the garage. He sifted through some items before he found what he was looking for, and that was the family's axe. Once Chris had his hands on the axe, he made his way 
to his parents' bedroom. He then crept into his parents' bedroom holding the axe. He stood at his parents' bed watching them sleep. He then held the axe above his parents before sadly launching an extremely vicious attack. It first started with his dad, Peter. Chris swung down that axe and it landed in his dad's head causing a huge laceration. Chris then decided to bring the axe down on his dad many more times until in the end, his dad had received 16 blows to the head. This cracked his skull. It penetrated his brain and took off part of his jaw. Next, Chris turns to his mom, Joan. Now in this attack on his dad, Joan had woken up, but instinctively she put her arms out trying to defend herself. But this didn't stop Chris. He proceeded to swing the axe down onto his mom as well. He first struck her multiple times in the arm arms and hands as his mom was trying to fight him off before brutally striking her three times in the head before she lost consciousness. Horrifyingly, by the end of the attack on Joan, one of her eyes had been split in half and the side of her jaw was hanging from her face. And following this brutal attack, Chris, confident that both of his parents were dead, walked out of the bedroom, went downstairs, and then he attempted to stage a break-in. He smashed the keypad on the alarm system, the one that he had entered the code in. He cut the phone lines and smashed a hole in the garage window because he wanted to make it seem like this is how the attacker had gotten into the house. And then following him staging the break-in, he got in his car and he drove off. That was horrifying. I mean, any attack on a person is horrifying, but the thought of him using an axe, that is so brutal, an axe. And I just don't understand. It's like his parents have been so good to him his whole life. And just because they had found out about his lies, this is what he did. And this attack was so personal as well. Peter was struck in the head 16 times. That is personal. That is an attack filled with rage. His mom was hit three times in the head. So not as personal, but still personal. When you attack somebody, in the face. It's personal. So now we get to the morning, but the morning after the attack on the 15th of November. Chris was now safely back at the university campus after driving back there in the early hours of the morning. But back at the Porco household, Peter's morning alarm was going off to get him up to go to work. Unbelievably, I cannot believe this. After being struck 16 times in the head, which I want to point out, cracked his skull penetrated his brain, Peter was still alive and conscious. So on that morning, his alarm is going off on his bedside table and Peter got up. I can't believe it. He climbed out of bed, he turned his alarm off and he went about his morning routine. And this is the part of the case that I have just never heard of happening before. Because even though Peter has obviously been struck 16 times in the head, I honestly just cannot get over that. It wasn't enough to be fatal. And this next part is way too technical and medical for me. So I've dumbed it down a little bit. So when Peter had sustained his injuries, the damage to his brain was only to the top part of his brain, which controls thoughts and reasoning. But the bottom part of his brain, which controls primal instincts and well-formed habits, was not damaged at all. So at this point, Peter is literally operating on autopilot. And this is crazy to me. I have never heard of this happening before. I'm sure it has. I've just never come across a case where it has happened. So Peter managed to get himself up out of bed. He walked from the bedroom to the bathroom. He stood over the sink. He looked at himself in the mirror. He is pouring blood everywhere. He is looking in the mirror seeing that he's pouring with blood, but his brain couldn't process what that meant. So instead, Peter acted on instinct. He saw that there was blood in the sink, couldn't figure out that it was his own blood, that he was bleeding, that he was in pain, and he just started to grab tissues and start to clean the blood up, his own blood. Next, Peter made his way downstairs, leaving a trail of blood behind him. But again, he could see the blood. He couldn't really process what that meant. So instead, he just walked into the kitchen and went about his normal morning routine, as if he was just getting up on any other day, 
getting ready for work. He carried out his morning routine. There is evidence that he tried to unload the dishwasher. There is even evidence that he started to make food as if he was making food for a packed lunch. He even stepped outside the front door to collect the newspaper. And when he went out to collect the newspaper, the front door actually shut behind him and locked him out. But Peter, operating on formed habits and routine and instinct, knew that there was a spare key under a flower pot. So he got the spare key, opened the front door and let himself back into the house. He then started to make his way back to the kitchen. But sadly, at this point, Peter had suffered huge amounts of blood loss. Sadly, before he could make it back to the kitchen, he collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. And this is when Peter lost his life. And it's just so sad. It's so heartbreaking that he was operating on autopilot. I remember seeing somewhere when I was doing my research that he was almost like a zombie. It's just so incredibly sad. And I just can't get over that the human body can do that for starters, but it's just so sad. And it's crazy that because of the blood trail and the tissues and just everything in the house, that investigators later on were able to piece together what he had done. Okay, so now we get to later on on that same morning and Peter hadn't shown up for work, which was so not like him. If he wasn't going to show up for work, he would have phoned in. So when he didn't show up for work, his colleagues were worried about him and they decided to call the police to check on him. So so the police arrive at the scene. The front door is actually slightly open with the front door key still in the lock. So the police enter the home and this is where they find Peter Porco at the bottom of the stairs in a pool of his own blood. And the police that first arrived at the scene said that Peter's injuries were so bad, it looked like he had been beheaded. And let that sink in. Let that sink in that it looked like he had been beheaded and he was able to go on autopilot doing his morning routine. The rest of the house also looked like a horror scene because obviously Peter was walking around and he was smearing blood everywhere. There was blood all over the carpet, all over the walls. And the police, obviously at that point, they didn't know that all of that blood had actually come from Peter. They were thinking, what the hell happened here? The police make their way upstairs to see if there is anyone else in the house. And this is where they come across Joan. She is still lying in bed and there is blood everywhere. They rush over to her to find that she also has severe injuries to the head. Her jaw was hanging, literally hanging off her face. Her eyeball had been split in two and she had teeth missing. And it is at this point where we get to the next unbelievable thing about this case because Joan was also still alive and conscious. When paramedics approached Joan, Joan actually raised her hand as if she was asking for help because that is the only way she could really communicate. So the paramedics right now are working against the clock because they need to try and save Joan's life. But the detectives are also at the scene and they can see her injuries and things are not looking good for Joan. And the detectives think that she's probably not going to make it. And they know that they need to try and at least get a little bit of information out of Joan about who could possibly have done this to bring them to justice. So the detectives start asking Joan questions and she is able to communicate through head nods and shakes. They ask her, can she hear them? which Joan nodded yes. Next, they ask if a family member had done this to her. Again, Joan nodded yes. She was then asked if her oldest son, Jonathan, had done this, to which she shook her head no. And then finally, the detectives ask her if her younger son had done this, Christopher Porco, to which Joan nodded yes. And right there and then, police were like, we know who did this. And Christopher Porco became their prime suspect. Joan was then rushed to hospital where she slipped into a coma and she had to undergo several operations on her face and skull. And her injuries were life-changing. She completely lost her left eye. Her right eye was also damaged. She lost part of her skull. These injuries were horrific and you only have to see pictures of Joan to actually realize how bad her injuries were. But thankfully and miraculously, she survived this attack. But whilst Joan was in hospital, obviously recovering and going through surgery and everything, the police set out to find Chris as soon as possible. But they didn't actually need to try very hard because Chris actually phoned them first. Chris places a 911 call where he says that he has been told 
that his parents have been murdered. And is this true? Now, people have commented on this 911 call saying that it was a bit strange. What he was saying was a bit strange, a bit cold, and a bit weird. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Corco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. So Chris is then taken down for an interview in the police station. They start questioning him about what happened, where was he, blah, blah, blah. And again, his behavior is a little bit odd. It's a little bit cold. Chris, during the whole interview, denies any involvement. And he says that the whole night he was in his college dorm, he was with his frat brothers, they were watching a movie, and they would be able to back up his story. But guess what? After this, the police went to question the frat brothers and no one remembers seeing Chris in the dorm. But this wasn't the only suspicious thing. Oh no, no. Because when they start to look into Christopher, where he could possibly have been, Chris's bright yellow Jeep was seen on CCTV leaving college campus at 10 30 p.m. on the 14th of November. His Jeep was also picked up on CCTV heading towards his parents' house. The Jeep was also spotted by multiple people on the journey to his parents' house. Like he had to pass through some toll roads and the people at the toll booths remember a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler. And even though those eyewitnesses might not be the most reliable, Chris's car is not the most inconspicuous. It is definitely a car that stands out and that you would remember. Also, the journey from his college to his parents' house would take approximately three and a half hours. So because Chris left the campus at 10.30 p.m., this would mean that he would arrive at his parents' house at 2 a.m. And it was confirmed by the security company that the Porco alarm system was disabled at 2.14 a.m. So this timeline fits perfectly. Also, the bright yellow Jeep was spotted on the driveway at the Porco household in the early hours of the morning by a neighbor. So it's like, Chris, if you weren't there, how did a neighbor see your car on the driveway? And then remember, after the attack on his parents, he staged a break-in, which included cutting phone lines. It was confirmed that these phone lines were cut at 4.54 a.m., which is approximately two hours, 45 minutes after he first entered the home and disabled the alarm system, which gave him plenty of opportunity to actually carry out this attack but then also possibly do some cleanup. Chris's Jeep was then spotted heading back to the University of Rochester at 5.14 a.m. He was then spotted on CCTV arriving back at campus at 8.30 a.m. Now that timeline fits perfectly. Like how much more perfect can that timeline be? And then after Chris's Jeep was spotted on the CCTV at 8.30, Chris himself was then spotted jogging around campus where he was spotted by multiple people, almost like he was trying to create an alibi. But the police were having none of this. I mean, come on, the timeline fits too perfectly. And the police were like, case closed. He did it. We don't need to do any more investigation. But then comes a huge twist that would turn this case on its head. Because remember, Joan had identified her son, Chris, as the attacker. Well, now she was in hospital and she had recovered from her surgeries, from her injuries, and she went on record and reversed this statement. She was now saying that Chris was completely innocent. Joan was claiming that she had no memory of the night of the attack. But all she did know is that her son, Christopher, would never do something like this. And Joan is very adamant about this. She gave a videotaped deposition to the police claiming this. She has also wrote letters to newspapers asking them to stop blaming her son and go after the real killers. Now, I think it's worth saying here that there are quite a few other family members that did think that Chris was responsible, including his older brother, Jonathan. It is pretty much just Joan 
sticking by Chris. It is just Joan that is saying that Chris didn't do this. And I honestly just feel so sorry for Joan. I do. I just feel like she is in an impossible situation. And it is very plausible that she has no memory of that attack. I mean, look at her injuries. And Joan is not going to want to think that her son has done this to her. And we obviously don't know 100% that Chris is guilty. I mean, it definitely looks like it was Chris. I mean, pretty much all the evidence points towards Chris. But anyway, back to the investigation. Obviously, Joan coming out and saying that Chris did not do this, she is reversing her statement, was a shocking revelation to the police. But they decided that they were sticking with Chris as their main suspect. They were convinced that he did this. It was also at this point that a couple of other suspects were looked into because like I said, it's not 100% clear that Chris did this. First of all, it was actually discovered that Peter received a death threat just a few years prior to the attack. This came from when he was working as an appellant judge and the case that he was dealing with, the man involved who was convicted, didn't take too kindly to Peter and actually sent him a death threat, which is obviously incredibly scary and serious. So the police obviously had to look into this. They were able to track down this man, but they had a solid alibi. Next, it was found that Peter's great uncle, Frank Porco, actually had ties to the mob. There were theories that Peter and Joan could have been targeted as a way at getting at Frank, the great uncle. His great uncle Frank was also known as Frank the Fireman. So there was a theory that because an axe was used in the attack, that could be symbolic. But again, this was ruled out. I mean, it just didn't make sense. Why would someone go after Joan and Peter because of Peter's great uncle, I mean, they're not exactly close. If you're going to get at the great uncle, Frank, you're going to go for a family member that is closer to him. I mean, Frank had children of his own that could have been targeted. It just didn't make sense. And that theory was ruled out. Jonathan, the other son, was also ruled out. He had a very solid alibi. He was actually at a naval base. Literally the only person that could have done this, that had opportunity to do this, and that also had motive to do this, was Christopher. So the police stuck with Chris and a year after the attacks, Chris was finally arrested and charged with the murder of his father and the attack on his mother. Following the arrest, he was released on bail, which was set at $250,000. Most of this was paid by Joan. And during this time on bail, Joan threw a birthday party to celebrate his 23rd birthday. And there was actually some footage of the two of them filmed for a TV show. Happy birthday, dear Chris. Happy birthday to you. Is this Chris's life story? Joan, is that what this is? It's a snap of different times in his life. What goes through your mind, Chris, when you look at a picture like that of your mom and dad? Oh. Um, makes me miss him. But at the same time, it makes you, makes you happy. And then in June of 2006, Chris finally went to trial. And again, Joan stuck by him the whole time. Joan can be seen walking arm in arm with Chris every day into the courtroom. During the trial, the prosecution portrayed Chris as a sociopath that would screw over anyone to get what he wanted. He had murdered his dad and attempted to murder his mom because they discovered his lies. Chris was also set to receive 1.1 million dollars in insurance if he had successfully murdered his parents. And the prosecution went with money as the main motive for the attack. Chris's past lifestyle as well, that he was a liar, that he screwed over his parents multiple times, stolen from them multiple times. And obviously we have all of the evidence that his Jeep actually made that journey to his parents' house on that night. It was caught on CCTV footage. It was spotted by witnesses. So it's like if Chris wasn't driving his yellow Jeep, Jeep. Who was? But the defense pointed out that there was no physical evidence to say that Chris did this. All of the evidence that the prosecution have is circumstantial. I mean, there was no blood found on Christopher. There was no blood found on him or in his Jeep. And the defense said with an attack that is so aggressive, there would have been some speck tiny little speck of blood on Christopher or in his Jeep. You can't just commit an act like that 
and walk away with no blood on you. But the prosecution actually had an answer to that. First of all, Chris was in the house for a very long time. He was in the house for approximately two and a half to two hours, 45 minutes. That was enough time to carry out the attack and clean up. It was also Christopher's home. He would have had a change of clothes there. But then don't forget, he also worked at a veterinary clinic where apparently he learned techniques on how to clean up blood. The defense also tried to say that there was another killer. There was someone else responsible because a single fingerprint was found by the phone lines that were cut. Now this fingerprint did not match Chris. It did not match anyone else in the house and they actually couldn't identify who this fingerprint belonged to. So the defense was saying that fingerprint belongs to the killer. Now this is just my opinion, okay? my opinion, I want to make that very clear. This fingerprint was found outside. The phone lines that were cut were outside. Therefore, this fingerprint could realistically belong to anyone. But I personally don't think that that fingerprint belongs to the killer because let's just play devil's advocate right now and pretend that Chris is not responsible. So there is another killer out there. This killer is clearly very organized because they did not leave a single piece of physical evidence. There is no DNA in that house. There are no other fingerprints in that house. So if the killer is so organized to not leave any physical evidence, why would they all of a sudden be so sloppy to leave a single fingerprint at the phone lines which they have cut? It doesn't make sense to me. But Christopher, his DNA would be all over that house. He lives there. His fingerprints would be everywhere. So I feel like that fingerprint, it's just random. Like, you know, it could belong to anyone. It's outside. Throughout the whole trial as well, Joan was sticking by Chris. She was proclaiming his innocence, saying that he wouldn't do this. She sat behind him the whole trial. She hugged him before and after each session. And in the end, the jury actually agreed with the prosecution. They thought that the evidence was just too compelling. And something that I found really really interesting is that the jury actually dismissed Joan implicating Chris on the night of the attack. The jury collectively agreed that Joan probably didn't know what was going on. The fact that she implicated her son is just not reliable, given what she had gone through. So I found it really interesting that the jury actually completely ignored Joan's nod implicating her son. They were just going on the evidence that the prosecution presented. So Christopher Porco was found guilty of second degree murder and attempted murder, and he was given 50 years in prison for each charge. Still to this day, Christopher proclaims his innocence and he has done many TV interviews saying so. It would not have been possible for me to do this with the lack of evidence there was. It just, it's just not possible. Do you still say today that the real killer is out there somewhere? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. I, I, I know that they're out there. Um, at this point, I have you know, little confidence that they'll ever be caught. But what do you guys think? Like, I really want to know what you guys think. Do you think that Chris did it? I mean, there is no denying that there are holes in the story. I mean, can anyone say for 100% certainty that Chris did this? Probably not. I mean, it definitely looks like he did. I mean, if we go back to Joan implicating her son on the night of the attack, I think it's very plausible that she didn't know what she was doing. It's very, very plausible that she wasn't aware of the questions being asked, what exactly those questions meant. So I personally don't think we should put too much weight on Joan nodding her head saying that Chris had done this because I just don't feel like you can. Look at what she had gone through. She would clearly be confused in that situation. I don't think it is reliable testimony. But then the evidence against Chris, I mean, that timeline, it fits too perfectly. Just the fact that his Jeep was seen on CCTV at the right times. His Jeep was also seen on the driveway by the neighbor. So the circumstantial evidence definitely doesn't look good either, does it? But I feel like there are very strong motives for Chris doing this. I mean, throughout this whole case, it is pretty clear that Chris is very money motivated, that he will pretty much do anything to get money. There was even one point where he was telling people that he was dead to steal their money. So the fact that he would inherit $1.1 million 
in insurance by the death of his parents, I think is a pretty strong motive for Chris. I mean, I remember reading somewhere that alive, his parents were only worth $60,000 to him, but dead, they were worth $1.1 million. There is also evidence of his violent outbursts as well. He does have a little bit of a temper. He can react and snap. Also, I'm going to go right back to the attack. The fact that most of the blows to both Peter and Joan were in the face and the head, that means that the attack was personal. And obviously that's not 100% certain, but if you are going to attack someone's face, it's personal. You are attacking the person. The face is the person, which tells me whoever did this attack knew Joan and Peter. And quite frankly, there is nobody else that Joan or Peter knew that could have done this. So I don't know. I feel like Chris did do it, but uh, let me know what you guys think. But finally, we're going to end this reflecting on the victims. Peter Porco was described as a loving father and husband. He would go out of his way to help anyone, especially his sons, Jonathan and Christopher. He had a long and distinguished career in the legal field and was especially proud of his work representing the interests of children. He was an active church member. He was a kids sports coach and a very active member in his local community. He will be missed by so many. He was only 52 years old. And then the other victim of today's story is Joan Porco. She miraculously survived this attack. She has suffered life-changing injuries. Not much is actually known about Joan today. However, it is thought that she still sticks by her son, Christopher. But wherever Joan is and whatever she's doing, I just hope that she is okay and she has been able to recover from this absolutely terrible ordeal. And that was the case of Christopher Porco. And I do have a little bit of an update for you. So since I first filmed this episode, Christopher Porco has been in the news again. So in January of this year, 2023, Christopher did an interview from prison with a local radio station where he told the interviewer that he was still working on getting himself a retrial. He is still proclaiming his innocence. But not just that, his mother Joan, who is now now in her mid-70s, is still also proclaiming Christopher's innocence. As part of his campaign for a retrial, Joan has submitted a sworn affidavit where she disputes a ton of the prosecution's evidence and also says that she 100% believes that there is no way that her son could have done this. So that is my update for you. He really wants a new trial. That is what has been in the news recently, but so far no new trial date has been set. It is actually unknown if he ever will get a retrial. And I don't really know. It's a head scratcher, this case, because obviously Christopher says that he didn't do it. Joan is now also saying that he didn't do it. But um, there is definitely some suspicious things in this case that suggest that he did do it. So who knows? Will we ever actually truly get the answers to this case? I just do not know. But all I will say just quickly is that I really just hope that Joan Porco is still doing okay. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one.